So I thought it would be interesting to come to Deconstruct and to to give a bit of a talk with a slightly different focus than everyone else. Uh, the thing is, is that there's a lot of people speaking that are so qualified to talk about digital products, but I'm mostly a person that just uses them. So when I talk today, I think I'm going to come from a user standpoint and maybe look at some general patterns of how digital products are affecting our relationship to content on the web and maybe make a bit of a pitch about something that I would like to see exist. I figure all of you work together and make the web. So if I can maybe convince you of a couple of my ideas, maybe that can help all of us and you'll get inspired and scurry off and make things. Um, I think that we're at a certain point with the web right now where we actually have a bit of a past to it. Um, I've, I've been online for... Sounds sounds like an Alcoholics Anonymous or something. I've been online for 15 years now, something like that, over a decade. And I'm sure many, many of you have been on the web for years and years. And this past history, I think, is something that we haven't had to really necessarily think about yet. But I think that it's a really interesting opportunity to consider. Um, there's been a lot of talk about recollection and memory so far. And I added this slide at the last minute because I've done a lot of speaking about delightful design. And I think the important point of it is the nature of that offering, of producing design that creates a joyful response out of the person using it or the audience. It's, it's in the experience, but it's also in the memory of that experience. And that role of that memory is part of the reason why I want to talk about uh, old stuff at a web conference. Um, so it's the memory and the recollection and this comes into our past. And if I look at my past of using the web, there's all of these trails behind me. It's kind of like walking through snow. I've left this trail of stuff that I've earmarked, bookmarked, starred, saved, just deemed was cool, awesome, notable, something that's potentially useful in the future. So I've left this trail behind me. I've been on Twitter for three years, so that's three years of tweets. I've been on Flickr for six years, so that's six years of favorites of other people's photos. There's a lot of stuff there, and it's a big pool of things that feels like it's largely untapped. And I think that the best way to sort of think about how to utilize these things is to look at the relationships between analog products and digital products, to sort of look at the characteristics that are unique to digital. And when they're good figure out how to amplify them. And when they're maybe bad or less fitting, figure out how to circumvent them a little bit. So this one's pretty obvious, right? Analog products, you can see them. They're visible. Digital products are invisible. If I buy an LP, there it is. If I buy an MP3, it's like out here in the air somewhere. Uh, analog products force us to remember, uh, whereas digital products allow us to forget them. This is both good and bad. It's not a value judgment. Um, so if I buy that same LP, um, I'm forced to remember it whenever I come across it. Or if it's sitting on a shelf, I'm forced to look at it, right? It's there. Digital products allow us to forget um, because they're invisible. This is both good and bad. It's good because you probably get annoyed when that electricity bill keeps on showing up in the mail. That wireless billing is much better. But there's also things that you feel bad about forgetting, like maybe a forgotten track that you haven't heard in a long time that gets buried in iTunes. Or really awful stuff like, I don't remember anybody's phone number because of my cell phone. I don't remember anybody's birthday because of Facebook. So 
analog, because it's visible and because it allows us to remember, our relationship is different. We find things in the analog space. So if there's something that I need, I'm forced to go to it. Very rarely does it come to me. Whereas with digital products, instead of finding, we usually search. So I put in a little query, and what I'm looking for comes back to me. So that motion is inverted with digital versus um, analog products. Also, it feels like we own analog products, whereas it feels more as if we're paying for access with digital products. Um, and the best way to sort of say this is if you lease a car, it feels like it's your car, even though you don't fully own it. And digital has sort of been swerving towards paying for access rather than owning things. And this is sort of the business model of things like Spotify and Netflix and all of these other, I guess you could call them new media, digital media companies. They're optimizing their business models for paying for access to digital products. Now, about this digital past, I sort of look at all these trails that I have behind me. They're invisible. I need to go look for them. I need to search and do all of that sort of stuff. And I did a quick index. So I've got a Tumblr blog where I blog about stuff that I find that I like. I've got Simple Note where I keep notes. I've got Evernote where I just put a bunch of stuff. I've got delicious bookmarks. I've got Kindle highlights and Tumblr likes and Instagram hearts. I've got Flickr favorites, a few years of those. Stars and Reader. I've got Pinboard. I've got browser bookmarks. I've got favorited tweets. I've got Last.fm hearts. I've got products that I've added to supply. I've got readability articles that I've indexed. There's a lot of stuff. And I'm sure that you guys have even more than this. Uh, and then on top of that, I can favorite, like, star, or plus one anything on the web, whatever plus one is. Right? So this is just going to keep on getting more and more diverse. I'm going to have more and more silos to save things that I enjoy because everybody wants me to do that because it gives them information about me as a user that lets them make recommendations, that helps them sell ads, all of these things. And it comes down to the key difference between analog and digital. It's that there is an infinite multiplicity to digital. If I have a file, if I have a picture in it's an analog picture. If I say, here, have the picture, I don't have that picture anymore. If I send you a photo through an email, I still have that photo, and now you have it. So it becomes replicated, and that very primary relationship of what it means to be digital extends into the services that we use. So what you have is you have a multitude of services that do very similar things. We have almost lots and lots of silos where we keep stuff that we like. That's what the situation looks like right now. So in analog space, when we have a collection of stuff, I call it the palpable stack, meaning that there's typically an order to it, whether or not it's purposeful or not. It's linear. I think of like going to the record store and sort of flipping through records, right? Whereas in the digital space, the stuff that I like sort of feels like this weird phantom pile. There's not much organization to it. I don't know the parameters of it. I don't know exactly how big it is. I have no idea how many songs I have in my iTunes library, for instance. I don't know how many photos I favorited on Flickr. Whereas if I look at a wall of LPs, I can say, okay, there's probably about 400 records there. Uh, the reason I call it a phantom pile is because I don't know the parameters, but there's still a presence to it, and I can still feel it, and that sort of feels like a weight. It's a good and a negative weight, because I know that it's there, and it burns cycles in my brain, knowing that there's all of this stuff that I've earmarked, and I'm not doing anything with it. And when I think about this multitude of stars that I have, of things that I've favorited, I sort of 
think about it and say they're away from me at multiple distances. Some things I favorited was yesterday, other things last week, other things three years ago that I've forgotten about. But when I go back and revisit it, it's flattened. I can't tell how far back in the past that thing was favorited. Um, so I think a bit, it's a bit like looking at the night sky. These stars are varying distances from us, but when we look at it all at once, it's spatial, there's a multitude, the expanse of it is intimidating, but also it seems like a big opportunity. So the opportunity is that I have this big pile of stuff, and it feels like there's a latent potential there. Um, I think all of us in here are people who make things. And whenever we save things or collect things, one of the reasons is we feel like it's going to be usable for us. We feel like maybe if we don't know what it's for right now, sometime in the future this could inspire us. Sometime in the future it might actually relate to a project that we're working on in some way. It's just that that latent potential is there. We just need to sort of shake it loose. The problem is... I think about this big pile of stuff and the opportunities of it, right? And this is like the one of the few images that I have in my brain of a big, awesome pile of stuff and using it for something. Granted, this doesn't have anything to do with money, but it's the idea that it's really valuable to have all this stuff in one spot. Uh, and the reason that it's valuable is because it gets to commingle. You get to see things juxtaposed next to one another. And I'll get more into this in a minute. Point it. This idea of taking everything that you like and putting it in one spot, organization be damned, is not a new concept. Um, in the 19th century, especially uh, here in Britain, gentlemen of the book and learned people would keep what they called commonplace books. And what a commonplace book was, almost a sketchbook or a journal, where you would do your reading, you would read your Ovid, you would read your Greek classics, and you would find the passages in philosophy or poetry that you like, and you would copy it into your commonplace book. It's sort of like a, a ye old version of a Tumblr blog, right? The value of this is, is actually incredible because it's got this whole structure built up around it, and it's very, very loose. You can see how messy this is. Obviously, this handwriting is incredible. Mine looks nothing like that. But um, you can see how there's like, uh, it's just sort of, all dashed together without any sort of plan. And I think that there's a real value to that. So commonplace books, I think, have a very intimate connection with what's going on with the web and our relationship to content. So one of my favorite quotes about the commonplace book is from Robert Parton. He said, by keeping an account of your readings, you make a book of your own, one stamped with your personality. If this doesn't sound like what it is to keep a blog of stuff that you like, I don't know what, what is. So what this means is that it kind of gets us into an avenue that's been popular. It's a catchphrase on the web, curation is authorship right? It also gets into another term that's uh, sort of been going around recently uh, called the creator economy. And there's another nice quote about the creator economy from Paul Sappho. I believe Koi Vin uh, wrote a blog post about this a few days ago. It says, now we're entering a third age in which the central economic actor is someone who both produces and consumes in the same act. So the reading and the writing, the making stuff and the consuming stuff just all get smushed together when it's done right. So what I'm thinking about is what are the digital products that we're making or thinking of making that accommodate this smushing of consuming and creating in one foul swoop. But in the digital world, this is 
back in the analog world. In the digital world, I think we're missing one key thing that happens in the commonplace books. It has an architecture of serendipity to it. Um, the computer by default sorts things, right? I'll get into that in a moment. But with a commonplace book, I have a faint notion of where things are, unless I do a very meticulous, like, index or something like that. But if I know something's towards the middle, a quote that I'm looking for, I kind of need to shuffle through a few pages to figure out exactly where it is. So there's an architecture for serendipity there because I have to find the content. I need to take a few steps to go find it. Whereas maybe with the current structures that we have with digital products, that serendipity is lessened a bit because it comes to me. There's no journey, so there's no opportunity for me to sort of look elsewhere. Now, there are systems that are primed for serendipity. If you've ever fallen in an, into a YouTube hole or a Wikipedia hole, you know what I'm talking about. But what I'm thinking is, why don't we have that sort of interrelated connectedness with this giant pool of stuff that we've already amassed, of things that we know that we like? We're also missing one thing for this to actually be curation. I draw a slight line between collecting and curating, um, and I think... The difference between the two, it's an architecture of arrangement. So producing digital products that create an architecture of arrangement for people. And to maybe show you what I mean by arrangement, the best thing that I can do is go to this guy right here. Um, this is from the BBC Special Life. David Attenborough. Love him. Thank you for him. From America. So what this Bowerbird does, if you can see him, it's a little dark, uh, what he does is he sort of rummages around the forest floor and he finds things that he likes and he brings it back to his bower, which is like a little hut that he's set up. It's a little, it's a little tent. So he finds berries, he finds flowers, he responds to colors that he finds pleasing and whatever that thing, he likes that thing, so he's gonna bring it back as well. He's very meticulous in the arrangement of this sort of stuff and I think that bowerbirds are actually really great curators. He's doing this for the same reason that most men do anything. Um, he's trying to find a mate. So your mileage may vary by doing this, guys. But the pattern of what the Bowerbird does, and the reason that I call this curation, is because he finds stuff. We do this on the web. He collects stuff. We do this on the web, too. But there's another step. He arranges it. And that's the important thing for me. Finding and collecting is fantastic. But I think it's the arrangement that really adds value. So this is unleashing that latent potential of our collections of the things that we've hearted and starred. This arrangement requires something that we don't do very frequently with digital media, especially on the web. It requires a second pass. You've got to take a step back and say, what do I have here? This is commonplace when you think about museums curating an exhibition, right? What do we want to say? Or what's in our collection? And how can we match things to create a narrative or a story? But this requires a second pass. And these inboxes that we have, whether they're Evernote or Yojimbo or anything else that just holds a bunch of things and it's across all medias, they're optimized for getting things in. And that makes sense if you're on a searching metaphor to get the stuff back out. But I think we get curation if we go more to finding things. So they're optimized for getting stuff in, not necessarily for getting stuff out from a third additional meaning standpoint. Sort of like a very simple put it in, retrieve it back sort of thing. Not put a bunch of stuff together and then look for the gestalt and look for patterns sort of thing. So when I think about getting something out of it and projecting a new meaning onto an arrangement of stuff, back to my star analogy, it becomes really, really obvious what the analogy extends into. 
constellations. So stars that are from various distances in the past being brought to the forefront and looking for a shape or a metaphor for it. This is the worst Big Dipper in the world, by the way. <laughs> There's probably some amateur uh, astronomist out in the crowd who's just crying at the thought of this. But it's connecting these separate things, creating a shape, and then Im imbuing it with a meaning. So when we make digital technology that optimizes for the second pass, I think we need to change up some of our decisions. We need to rethink a few things because the nature of the content is different. If it's a second pass, it means it's stuff that we've already seen. So the three big decisions that I think need to be made if we're optimizing digital products for revisiting and having an architecture for arrangement and having an architecture for serendipity are these. The first is we need to reassess how we sort stuff. Because it's all old content, we need to rethink our defaults. So Richard Solwerman, uh, who invented information architecture, sort of came up with a model for how we can sort stuff. He calls it LATCH. So LATCH stands for Location, Alphabet, Time, Category, and Hierarchy. Of course, there's a sixth, uh, which is no sorting, nothing random, but that makes it not catchy. So LATCH. And when we look at our default way of sorting things on, on the web, uh, it sort of looks a bit like this, right? The stuff that we publish, the stuff that we save, it's in reverse chronological order. Now, this is great for the audience if you're constantly presenting them with new stuff, right? When's the last time I was here? Yesterday. Okay, what's new since yesterday? Perfect, it's at the top. But this arrangement doesn't necessarily work very well if it's things that you've already seen. So this metaphor seems to work better for a searching paradigm with new content versus a finding paradigm with old content. We also need to look at how we sort things out spatially. Um, this is a painting uh, by Haim. It's, it's, it's of one of the salons from the 19th century at the Louvre. And those paintings are packed up there. Every single square into that wall is just there, filled up. I guess there's, I don't have a laser pointer, but there's like a little gap up there that maybe somebody could have painted something in that shape to fit. But otherwise, it's full, right? And these guys' tights are awesome. That guy has a sword. At a museum. That's pretty cool. Um, does this remind you of any sort of layout paradigms on the web for how we structure content? Okay, so, uh, you know, masonry and all of that with the Tumblr blogs. This is, I think, really effective for new stuff, but I think that just having a very linear, blocky sort of layout is maybe somehow limiting with things that we've already seen if we're looking to arrange it. Because we need to look at the properties of digital, right? So maybe not this. With digital, it's infinitely mutable. And like I said, with the photo, if I send you the photo, I don't lose it. So we can have copies of stuff. Things can live in more than one basket at once if we're sorting things out. You guys get this, you know? But what I'm thinking is we sort of loosen things up a little bit and... We consider spatial arrangements for things. Maybe instead of like that example of the salon, 
Instead, maybe considering it more of a contemporary museum where things are spaced out and it's considered an experience that people can sort of enter in at any point and consider the relationships between things. So we can tinker with the arrangement of things and then ultimately try to get it to a point that we think is satisfactory. Okay, the second reconsideration that I think we need to have is how we move through time. This is an idea that we're just sort of getting started with on the web, right? The idea that content can time shift. Best example of this that you're probably familiar with is Instapaper. I love Instapaper. I just want to high-five Marco for the rest of my life because I use it so much. But the great thing about Instapaper is that it lets me defer, and I think everybody loves it because it's just postponing stuff. It's dallying. Right? It's like, I don't know, it's like adding movies to your Netflix queue, right? Or like adding music that you'll probably never listen to to your Spotify queue. It's just like aspirational. Of course I'm going to read these 50 New Yorker articles. Of course I am. But what Instapaper does is it's a DeLorean, right? It takes the article that you're at and it just shoots it off to the future. Check this out. This is the only time I will ever be able to use those transitions in Keynote. Thank you. But time machines go both ways. We can take something in the present and push it off to the future, or we can take something from the, be- from the past and bring it to where we are right now. And I think we're at a point with the web where there's enough content, there's enough sort of uh, footprints behind us that we can bubble it up and bring it back to where we are right now. Think about this. How nice would it be to have an RSS reader, an iPad RSS reader that surfaces articles from the blogs that you follow from last year. Some of that content isn't going to age well, but I think that there's several websites that I follow that would be incredible to see content resurfaced from last year. So taking things from the past and then bringing them to the forefront again is sort of um, something we haven't explored with this time-shifting idea. There's not a lot of examples of it. The best example, my favorite example, is from PhotoJojo, uh, they're a photography website. They do awesome things. If you're not aware of them, check them out. I give them two frank thumbs up. One of their best features, one of my favorite features, is you can look the, uh, uh, hook them up with your Flickr account. And what they'll do is uh, every once in a while, twice a month, they will send you an email with a photograph that you took a year ago. The third is what media is supported. I think we need to be multimedia about this. I recently, a few months ago, launched a blog called The Mavenist, and it's sort of a Tumblr blog that's discussion-based where we share different kinds of media with one another. And it made me really realize the power of having a video next to a quote, next to a tweet, next to an image, with a general arrangement and a narrative to it. That's a linear layout, but I started thinking, what would happen if you could put videos next to tweets, next to a map, next to a photo of pizza, next to maybe a recipe for pizza dough? So... If you, uh, there's, there's a lot of women's fashion blogs that do this. They curate looks. They, they put shoes next to a dress, next to a piece of jewelry, and they have very clumsy tools to do that. They do it in Photoshop, they comp it all together, and then they have a paragraph underneath with text links to go buy those things. So what if we gave them tools to do that, and what would happen if other people gained the motivation to easily be able to arrange and curate all the stuff that they've marked in the past? The best example that I've seen is an iPad app called Biblion from the New York Public Library. What they do 
is they take their collection and they put on exhibitions that are arranged spatially. So I'll flip through these really quickly. So these are the exhibitions right now. Spatial. So they arrange things. They juxtapose imagery with text that's specially written to tie everything together. Very intriguing. I'm not sure if it's available over here. I presume that it is. It's called Biblion from New York Public Library, and it's one of my favorite iPad apps. I was going through it, and I had a thought. Why can't I do this with all the stuff that I've already marked as what I like? Why not my collection, too? So I look at all of these stars that I have, and I have this strong desire to shake loose the latent potential to make connections. And I think about the ancient Greeks that made up a lot of the constellations that we have and how they used that flattened space to project a meaning onto what they saw to tell stories and to essentially figure out their place. I'm really inspired by this stuff. Um, I hope you like it too. Hopefully you agree with me. And if you have any questions, I'd love to talk to you. Thank you.